Today, we have Jeremy Schneider, a successful entrepreneur and content creator who educates people today on personal finances. Welcome to the show, Jeremy. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. And you know, thank you to thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And we just want to get straight into it. We know you're very big on Instagram and you have over 250,000 followers and you're a huge advocate for personal finance. But we want to kind of take it from the beginning and kind of see where this all began. So what was that kind of moment or the steps that you took to actually get to the point where you are? What was that first stepping stone? The first moment. Oh, wow. Let's see. I think my parents were uh, 27 and 30 and they probably had too much to drink one night. And uh, nine months later, little Jeremy came out. No, um, I was lucky because I had uh, a dad and a, and a mom who both basically talked about money. And so I worked in high school. And when I had my first summer job, my dad basically cleverly opened up a Roth IRA for me and put, you know, he was nice enough to basically do a dollar for dollar match and took all the money that I made from my job and put it into a Roth IRA using his money. So basically letter of the law, you can't contribute more to an IRA than you earn. And I had made like 1200 bucks that summer. Um, and so he put 1200 of his own bucks into this Roth IRA and then basically explained to me what an IRA is, what mutual funds are, like how you put money in there and then they grow over time. Um, and so I basically had this very nice, you know, very early start. And at the time I just thought it was normal, like all kids. And you guys were, are about that exact age that I was when I started investing, you know, via my dad basically walking me through it. Um, I thought that was like typical for all 16 and 17 year olds. Um, but now that I'm 40, I'm old as dirt. Um, you know, I have friends now who are my age who are smart, hardworking people who like have careers and stuff. And, and they're kind of like, Hey, how do you invest? I was like, Whoa, you haven't like, you haven't been having, you haven't had mutual funds the last 20 years. Um, so yeah, I was lucky to get an early start because I had, you know, parents who, who were helping me. So yeah, it seems like you were exposed to this stuff early on, which is obviously really, really good. So when you were in high school or college, did you have the mindset of wanting to get the standard nine to five job or were you more geared towards avoiding the rat race entrepreneurship? Where did you sort of envision yourself early on? So I was in college during the first dot-com boom. And I'm not sure why I'm saying the first because I kind of feel like maybe we're in the second dot-com boom right now. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. But uh um, you know, th this was a time in like the late 90s where like there's this huge stock market run up and, you know, venture capital is just like flowing into any company. And so I, I started college in 98 and graduated in 02. And so like my freshman, sophomore year, I was like, oh, yeah, man, I'm going to graduate. And I was studying computer science. So I was like, I'm going to graduate with a computer science degree, like get a million dollars, work for three years and retire at 25. I li there's literally a newspaper article about me in college because I was also a um, a track athlete. So I like was, you know, had some like college newspaper articles about me that was like quoted, quoted me saying that I plan to retire at 25, which I did not spoiler alert. So sorry, college Jeremy, you were a big dis disappointment. Um, but I, you know, I did end up retiring at 36, which is still sounds old to you guys, but still young and the, um, you know, the big scheme of things. So yeah, I guess um, that was kind of like my, that f shaped my worldview, which is you know, you can start companies and grow them quickly and have a big exit and, um, you know, retire young. So yeah, that's, I was never really interested in the nine to five. And in fact, I got a job offer from Microsoft as I was graduating college 
which in 2002 was like this incredible job offer, like the best tech company on the planet. Um, and I turned it down and I started a company instead. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I did. Yeah. So you just talked about how you turned down an offer from Microsoft. I mean, everyone knows it's the, probably the, one of the biggest tech companies out there. How did you have, you know, that kind of confidence or believe in yourself that you can turn down this company and you know that the one that you're going to make by doing entrepreneurship is going to be better in the long term. How do you like kind of overcome that fear, that stigma that you want to have that stable nine to five? Um, you know, I'm not sure it was confidence. Um, and it certainly wasn't certainty. Like I didn't know my company was going to do better. Um, and I wasn't even very confident. It's just that I didn't want to work for Microsoft. I was basically like a naive punk kid who, uh, I had interned there for two summers previous. So I had like lived in Seattle for, you know, the summers before my last two years of school. And, um, I just didn't like it. I didn't like working for a gigantic company. I mean, I like Microsoft. I'm not, you know, I'm not denigrating the company. It's like a great company, like amazing benefits. Like they do everything they can do to make it a great culture, but it's a company of like whatever, 40 or 50,000 employees. I don't even know what it is like. And so if you're like just the low man, the totem pole there, your work doesn't really have a big impact. Um, yeah. And I maybe would have otherwise like joined the Peace Corps, or, like gone traveling or something. Not that I had any money because I was broke, but like uh, maybe I would have gone and done something crazy. But I like my girlfriend at the time was had another year of school left. And so I kind of was stuck in my college town. So I was like, well, I don't want a real job. And I even sent some like unsolicited emails to like really tiny companies in town. I was like, I was like, hey, you guys have two employees. Do you want a third one? Like, I just want to work for a small company and like did not get any responses. So I was like, um, all right, I'll start my own company. So yeah, it was not really confidence or certainty, just, uh, I don't know, dumb ignorance and, and stubbornness, I guess. So while we're sort of on the topic, I just sort of wanted to ask you, does, can everyone be an entrepreneur or are there specific traits that you're sort of born with that uh, like you just can't learn or can everyone really be an entrepreneur? I don't think there's anything that you're born with. Um, I think there's certainly a, an aspect of privilege to being an entrepreneur. So, you know, when I decided to start a company, I was 21 or 22. Um, I had about 6,000 bucks in the bank and I had no student loans. Um, you know, largely thanks to my parents paying for college, but I also got a track scholarship and being athletic scholarship. And, and so I basically was able to graduate with an undergrad master's um, with no debt, you know, and, you know, stories are complex, right? It's easy. Like, I think people want to like label things and, you know, baked into my story was some privilege. Like I had upper middle-class parents who had a college fund for me, saved, saved my for college, but also like I, I worked hard, you know, like I, you know, no one in my family was ever an athlete. No one from my school was really like the kind of like school that would like, you know, produce athletes. Like I, you know, went against the grain and became this like pretty solid runner and, and earned a scholarship. And so like, was it all privilege? No. Was it all hard work? No. Um, but yeah, but basically what that resulted in was I could start a company. I wasn't like, I wasn't a single mom of three kids, like swimming in debt. And I was like, oh, I, I, I like, I'm going to take a risk. Like, you know, single moms of three kids swimming in debt, like can't, take a risk. They got to like put food on the table, like every single day. Whereas I had 6,000 bucks in the bank and I had a credit card and I had parents who like never bailed me out. But like, I knew that I probably wasn't going to die broke on the street if like this failed. Um, 
And so I basically decided to, you know, take a risk. I'm making air quotes. I know this is a podcast. It doesn't make sense. But um, so, you know, this like myth that entrepreneurship is about these risk takers, it's, it's generally like, like limited to people who can take risks, right? And then, you know, once I did decide to take that risk, I think what's what being a successful entrepreneur boils down to is basically like stubbornness and being able to figure it out, right? And, and that I don't think had anything to do with my specific upbringing. I think often generally like immigrants are much better entrepreneurs because um, immigrants are the kind of people who uh, figure stuff out, right? Like getting to the US is not and he's like, it's not like no one rolls out the red carpet, you know, especially like lately. Um, and so people who can figure out how to get to the US often make better entrepreneurs, just statistically, like at least from what I've read. Um, and, you know, I, I don't think there's really a big gender or race um, disparity. I think, yeah, it's about privilege and then just being able to figure it out. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. Yeah. So from what I'm hearing, like certain stars have to align for you to get into that situation where you can have that sort of mindset that, yeah, I can start my business, right? Yeah, I, I stars aligning makes it sound too, you know. Too like, uh, like privilege, like, it, it, like there's still hard work. There's still that aspect of like self-initiative. Yeah, like, like if it was a single mom, you know, I think she would have a harder time, um, but I think she could, you know, I think that, you know, I definitely, you know, there are definitely plenty of stories of single moms who are fantastically like much more successful than I am entrepreneurs, because they have like an even bigger dose of that willingness to like, you know, fight through and figure stuff out and like, you know, take the unchartered path. Um, and so, yeah, and I, I think anyone can do it, but it's, it's, uh, it's scary because there's no guarantees, right? Like even when I started my company and when I started my company, I ended up racking up $12,000 in credit card debt over the first couple of years, um, you know, not, not through abusive spending or like some like naive attempt to spend money to make money, but like literally just to like buy the cheapest groceries I could buy to like, you know, survive while I was like trying to get someone to like, you know, pay me money. I, you know, I think my first year in business, I made $14,000 top line revenue before my company's expenses, which was, you know, a couple thousand dollars or something. So I maybe had $10,000 and now it's like, you know, 800 bucks a month or something. And that's just not enough to live on, you know, by any, you know, I think my rent was 400. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can start, you can start cutting up 800 bucks. Like there's no amount of frugality that's going to make that work. So I, I basically had to live, you know, I didn't have to, but I chose to live on credit cards. Um, and then, yeah, for, I did that for basically two years before I was able to start paying myself enough to get out of debt. Yeah, so I think it's really nice to hear your perspective, how you went through those first two years. That entrepreneurship, while it might seem like really risky, for you, you had a backup. You kind of had a backup plan in terms of if it didn't necessarily work out, you could fall back to a higher place than most people. So kind of after hearing that, we wanted to know how you went into your decision to actually start a business. So what was the idea and how did you end up getting your business going? Yeah, I did have a backup plan, you know, and I don't think that's, uh, that made me like a weak entrepreneur. I don't think like, I don't think like young entrepreneurs have to like, you know, cut all ties with all employers or something. You know, in fact, like in my very early days, I was working part-time as a, uh, like a construction handyman. Like this guy was remodeling his home and I was like going to his, I was like, programming half a day and then swinging a hammer half the day i was like doing kind of some some contracting for my like a previous employer just to like again just like have some money to eat um so but yeah my idea was early on there was no idea i was a computer programmer and i basically was trying to sell 
uh, like, what did I call it? Like custom programming or something like that, or affordable custom software, I think, where people could just hire me and I would build them software. But it turns out that wasn't a very good idea because people don't really want to like hire software guys. They want to like buy a product. Um, and so then I ended up selling a, a website to my former landlord who had this terrible website. And um, I basically was able to sell this website in a single phone call. And I was like, whoa, that was amazing. Um, and so then I just decided to start selling a bunch of landlord websites because that one was so easy. Um, and then I um, eventually changed the name of my company to Rentlinks, R-E-N-T-L-I-N-X, and made a, basically a rental housing advertising service. Um, so basically landlords have a choice of posting on like 50 different websites to advertise their rental properties like Zillow or Craigslist or apartments.com or, you know, rentals.com or apartment guide. There's like 50 of these sites. And so I made a website where landlords could post once and automatically advertise on all those different sites and have like their leads come back to them. So yeah, it was, and it was a path of many years. I, I didn't have like this, like, you know, I wouldn't wake up one day inspired by the, the dramatic need of rental housing advertising syndication. I just kind of like found some customers, saw a, pain point in their lives and then over the course of years in my case end up building a product to to match that um i you know but i was young and didn't know i was doing i I hope if i um you know i actually am starting another company right now i hope i'll do better this time finding that product market fit sooner um but that's what i did last time yeah i mean i think that's a really great idea especially for people who are listening who want to come up with an idea right like right now i feel like your idea can reciprocate in other ways in, in different forms in, you know, today, in today's modern world. But um, it, it seems like, you know, you, there was a lot of ups and downs in your entrepreneurial endeavor. So what's the biggest obstacle you faced when you had your business? That's a good question. There's, there's like some dead air right here. The biggest obstacle, <laughs> I think, you know, I think the early days were tough because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing and I, I didn't really know how to get the first client. Um, you know, I did, how, like why on earth would anyone pay money to like a 22 year old who had no idea what he was doing, who had never sold something before. Um, and so like just getting that very first bit of traction was tough. And then, you know, and then pivoting the business. And so for, you know, a, a few years we were trying to sell this like website tool or it's basically like a website for landlords and it was really hard to sell and it was really slow to sell and you know and i and then you know when i finally like had the um you know the courage to basically pivot the business and say hey let's sell a whole different product to the same customers but sell a different product um you know business the business started like taking off like you know growth increased much more quickly um yeah, I don't know. I guess those, I'm not sure either of those were super big challenges. Maybe I'm like remembering with rose colored lenses. It was kind of a long time ago. Like I started the business at 21 or 22 and now I'm 40. Um, and so now I'm just remembering, yeah, it turned out to work out. But like, there's lots, like there's a lot of dark days where like, I didn't know if it was going to work. Right. Um, and yeah, I like didn't have health insurance for like two or three years. And, and I was like, man, if I can't get health insurance, like I was a idiot 23 year old. So I know you guys are like teenagers. So you think 23 probably sounds pretty old, but from 40 year old perspective, like 23 year olds have no idea what they're doing. Um, and so I was an a 23 year old probably like should have had health insurance. Um, but yeah, there's some dark days where I didn't know if it was going to work. And I was, you know, and like my backup plan was to go get a job. You know, I like 
I might've been able to call Microsoft and been like, Hey, remember two years ago when you offered me a job, like that's still on the table. Um, maybe they would have said yes. I don't know. Uh, or found some other job. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I, I think just, just the, uh, the persistence, like the, the day in and day out with no, you know, and, and oftentimes entrepreneurship is like a total emotional roller coaster. Like you get one phone call and someone who's interested, you're like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to make a sale. If I make one sale a week, you multiply 52 sales a year or a week, you know, 52 sales a, a year. And you're like, oh, I'm going to be rich. And then like two weeks go by and like, don't get any phone calls. Don't get any emails. And you're like, oh my God, this thing's stupid. Like no one's ever going to buy this. Um, and like pushing through those dark days where you think it's going to fail. Um, yeah, that's, that probably was my biggest challenge. That's my answer. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great kind of eye-opening statement because a lot of people don't really know the challenges, especially with entrepreneurship, because most people, they look at the result. They don't necessarily see the journey as to what happened towards getting that end goal. So I kind of had another question along those lines. When you worked on your business and you probably spent a lot of time, how was your lifestyle then in terms of, do you just only work on your business and didn't have too much time to do other things? How were your personal finances managed? Like, how were you, how was your lifestyle overall? That's a good question. I think that's a good point about like people seeing the end result and not always looking at the struggle. I think, you know, you look at an NBA player, for example, and you're like, you're like, oh man, wouldn't that be nice to be like so tall and so successful? But I'm like, the, those NBA players work their asses off like every day. And like they're in empty gyms with no spectators. They're in empty like weight rooms. They're like doing like, like burpees and hill repeats and taking thousands of shots and like you know just grind 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 for decades you know these nba players who you know get in the nba in their 20s have probably been doing it for 10 years have been like working their butts off you know like middle school high school like you know and, and it's all and and what makes someone successful isn't like the day they like you know hit a buzzer beater and in the nba it's like the 10 years of grind that went into it um and, and the same is true for for businesses, right? Like one of my favorite sayings is overnight success takes about a decade because you see these, you know, businesses that are like, oh man, they just got $5 million of funding or they just got acquired or went public or whatever this like measure of success is. But like, there's like this long grind that happens before that. And so, yeah, my, my, you know, my, not that my life is all that glamorous now, but it definitely wasn't glamorous back then. It was, um, you know, I was initially working out of uh, my living room, like, and I had a one bedroom apartment, tiny, like part of a duplex. And I was like my, I was working in my living room. Um, yeah, living on credit cards, uh, you know, eating the cheapest food I could from Meyer. I was living in Michigan. Um, you know, eventually I got a two bedroom and had an office in the two bedroom. Um, that was okay. Then eventually we did get an office and it was like a, the tiniest little office. Like, you know, I think we were paying like 250 or 300 bucks a month just like a hole in the wall like 10 foot by 10 foot you could put like shove two desks against the wall and like we got an internet connection this was like this was like three years in now still like very um you know very low like uh like quality stuff or whatever um i my my max salary ever when i was like ceo of my company was thirty six thousand a year that would be like my take-home salary um i literally never took home more than that I was driving a 99 Ford Explorer the day I sold the company. Um, I was living with roommates. Um, you know, it was, I was, I was scraping by just to like throw everything into the company. And so I think, you know, and I think that's important. You know, I, a lot of people who want to start companies are, 
attracted to this like oh god i'm gonna, I'm gonna be like inking deals i'm gonna be like wheeling and dealing and like big money i'm like i'm like there's a grind there and i think you know the the other successful entrepreneurs i talk to like are in it for the grind and sometimes when i talk to someone who comes with an app idea like oh i've got this great app idea and i basically start to explain this is how i think your app idea could be the most successful and I explain the work that goes into it and then they're like you can see that kind of their eyes kind of like get to feel like oh I thought I was just going to be able to tell someone my idea and like have someone shower me with money or whatever. And I'm like, that's, it's never worked that way. Like it's never worked that way. It's always about the grind. Right. And that, that is so on point because like Pravar was saying, like, you know, it, it's all based on the journey. There's a lot, lot going on there before you actually get to that end end result. So I wanted to ask you while you were on your journey, did you have any sort of entrepreneur or any mentor that you looked up to while you were creating your business? Well, my mom actually joined my company. So my mom uh, has, I went to the University of Michigan, got a degree in computer science. And my mom went to the University of Michigan and also got a degree in computer science. And so you guys are teenagers and computer science is very common. When I was, you know, you think you must think I'm pretty old, but you know, when I was in college, computer science was like a very well established thing. But when my mom was in college, like that was in the 70s, like you know, computers weren't even really a thing. There was no such thing as like a like a desktop computer. Computing was like they existed, but they're like in warehouses. They were ma massive and required like big like engineers to screw in parts and stuff to like do some like very simple computing. And so she was like like one of the very first computer science graduates. Um, but she, you know, she grew with the industry and she was actually an entrepreneur in her own right, where she was the second employee at a company that grew to 70 employees and was acquired. Um, and then, you know, she was my second employee and she actually became like a part owner. Um, and so she was, you know, again, privileged, like who, who has a mom who has a degree in computer science, um, but I do. And so, yeah, I'm not, I was never really big, even with her, I was never really big into the mentor thing. Like I was her boss. Um, she was like, you know, the vice president or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I never really formalized the mentor thing. Personally, I, I act as mentor to some other startups sometimes. Um, and I think that it, they find value in it. Um, sometimes, you know, maybe, I don't know. Um, but I personally didn't really ever seek out mentors. I don't know why, maybe I should have. I might be, uh, I don't know, might be more successful if I did. Yeah, definitely seems like you were really self-driven. You didn't, I mean, obviously maybe you didn't know back then that a mentor could have helped a lot, but from what you did, from what you learned, you definitely became really successful as you ultimately sold your company for, I think, $5 million. So we kind of been talking about like the hardships of the company, but what was that turning point where you start to realize that this business is doing really well and then up to the point right before you sell it, how were you kind of feeling? How were the emotions then too? I mean, until... There was a, there's actually a video I post on my Instagram where it's like a legit, I never thought I would post this publicly. I thought this was like for my own, for my eyes only, but like I literally videotaped my bank account the day I clicked refresh and saw it go from like a hundred grand, which was like my lifetime earnings to like <laughs> millions of dollars. And, uh, and until that moment, I wasn't sure. Like, you know, in fact, like there was, there's a period of what's called due diligence where. Um, the company that bought us basically sent us a word document that said, we plan to buy your company for this amount of money. And it's called like a letter of intent or a, a term sheet or something. And, you know, it's just a, it's just a word document. That's like a legal contract that says what they're planning to do. Um, and then eventually there's another contract sign. That's like the actual purchase agreement. It's another word document. You know, I say this because I feel like 
the concept of uh, acquiring a company is so abstract that people are like, what does that mean to acquire a company? But it's literally just Word documents. It's not even Google Docs. It's just Word documents that could just get emailed back and forth. And so there's like these series of these Word documents. And then at some point you sign them and at some point money transfers, like they literally just wire money. You know, uh, if you guys don't know what wiring is, it's just like, it's kind of like uh, an electronic transfer, but it's usually you have to pay, pay your bank like 20 bucks to do one, but it's like instant. And so usually when you're talking about big dollar amounts, you go and like you wire the money instead of like writing a check or something. I don't know if you guys don't even know what checks are. It's like, instead of Venmoing, what do, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like Venmoing except with millions of dollars. Um, so wait, what was I talking about? The, uh, yeah, <laughs> tell me the, tell me the question again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wiring. So kind of the turning point where you realize that your business was, you know, oh, right. going to be successful and all of that. I mean, which, you know, yeah. So until, point. until that wire cleared I, in, in that period of due diligence, I literally couldn't sleep. I was having trouble sleeping because I knew an exciting thing was in the process of happening. Um, and I knew that there was potentially going to be millions of dollars coming to my bank account, but you know, deals fall through all the time. Um, and, uh, until that money cleared, like I wasn't sure it was going to, I wasn't hundred percent sure it was going to happen. You know, as we got closer, I was more and more sure. Um, yeah. So, and, and, and if that deal had fallen through and that company found something they didn't like or got sidetracked or whatever, you know, I would have been back to like, you know, being a poor guy again, like you know, driving my 99 Ford and like, you know, and the company was doing okay. Like we were doing about a million dollars a year in revenue, but our expenses, the year we sold, you know, broad strokes, we had like $25,000 in profit. So we like spent, or we earned a million, you know, we made a million and we spent 975,000, you know, that was largely by choice. Like I could have spent less. Most of that money I was spending was on engineers that I hired and there's seven of us. Um, you know, their salaries are like a hundred thousand dollars each or more. Um, and so I could have like fired one of them and just like kept their salary for myself or whatever. Um, but I was purposely like aggressively growing the business. So, yeah, but you know, I think there was uncertainty until the last day. Um, but you know, over the 10 years that there was lots of, you know, there was like times where, you know, I, originally I would like send an, an invoice, like in a letter and like, I'd send like one invoice every couple of weeks. And then, you know, there was a day where we sent like 30 invoices on one day. I was like, oh man, like we have like a lot of money coming in and, you know, a million bucks a year is like, what is that? A uh, hundred thousand bucks a month almost. So we were, you know, we we're making like, you know, 80 or $90,000 a month. It's, you know, and as a guy that I like, had never seen any real amount of money before, like that was pretty crazy. Like we were spending it all too. So I wasn't like personally wealthy, um, but it was cool to like see this business, like actually get some real traction compared to the early days where I was like, you know, if I saw a thousand bucks, I was like super happy. So I wanted to go back a little bit more to like the hardships aspect again, but um, as like the CEO of a company, I'm sure you'd have a big role in leadership and, you know, leading your staff. So how did you, how were you able to motivate your staff when, you know, sales weren't as great or how are you like, how would you reinforce your mission, the mission of your company? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I hope I'm a good leader. Um, I think good leaders are generally doers. Um, you know, I, I always, you know, I, I never asked someone to do something I wasn't willing to do. I never generally asked people to do, you know, sometimes I would like, you know, break up assignments and stuff like that. But, you know, I generally was trying 
to lead by example and just work really hard and, you know, and, and set the type of culture I was trying to set. I think that, um, you know, if you're not willing to do that, then like, you know, and I think a lot of people who are promoted into management sometimes become bad bosses because they think that it's their job to like crack the whip or whatever. Um, and like crack the whip type managers do not inspire like hard work or motivation. They just inspire like anger and, and like, you know, discontent and make people want to quit. And so, and if you don't want to do the hard work to inspire hard work, then like, I don't think you're going to be a good manager. And so, um, you know, I never asked anyone to do anything I wasn't willing to do. I treated people with like huge amounts of respect, I hope. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, and I don't know, I feel like, it, and I, I kind of made it simple because I was like, just, just like have the kind of company that you would want to work for, like, don't be a dick kind of like mentality. And so, you know, sometimes I hear stories of people who like get a demerit at work if they like, you know, are late because of a dentist appointment or something. I'm like, man, like, there's nothing that would make me want to quit faster than someone giving me a demerit or I was like stuff like that, where it's like nitpicking pay time off. So I didn't really get the concept of pay time off. Like I just, like, I didn't really care if people were at work or not at work. I cared if work was getting done. I wanted people to be productive. And so, you know, counting how many days people don't work seemed ridiculous to me. I wanted to count the work that got done. And so we, I, I initially set a policy of unlimited PTO. PTO stands for paid time off. And so I said, you can take as much paid time as, as you want. Like, you know, simply do your job, do your job well, and we're not going to track PTO. And then what happened was nobody was taking PTO. Like nobody, like my employees were never taking paid time off because they felt like they didn't want to be unfair to the other employees or they did like they saw that I wasn't taking much time off or whatever, um, which was maybe my fault that I should have been setting that example too. But then I changed the policy to um, minimum required PTO. And so I said every, one week, every quarter, one week, every three months, you have to take time off. Um, and that was nice because then basically for a week, people were like, I have to take time off. And it was nice because you have to go on vacation or whatever. Um, and then also, if you have a dentist appointment or something, that's not going to get like counted against you. And today, you know, now I run Personal Finance Club, which is now a company too. And I have one employee and VV is my one employee and she has that same policy, like a minimum required time off. And, um, you know, her first quarter was the first quarter of 2021. And she like pushed until the very end. But like the last week of that quarter, she went to Vegas for a week or something. And it was great. And she was like, I think she, at least what she said to me was that she was appreciative that she didn't have to like work to the bone. I just kind of go rambling. Sorry, guys, I'm long winded. I know I don't know any other way. No, no, that's perfect. And the thing was, I was going to kind of segue into something else. But then when you told me that your employees would not be willing to take paid time off because they wanted to keep on working for the company, I just had to I just had to stake to this question because you're obviously doing something that's, you know, working really well. That's getting these your employees influenced and motivated to just constantly work with that time off. So kind of, I guess, what exactly, how exactly was the work environment that you created in terms of, were you like uh, always pushing them or were you like letting them have a lot of freedom? Because it's really hard for people because most people think that working is a chore. How do you think you helped others view it as in it being something to help them and you out and like the company as a whole? That's a good question because I think that's like another bad management technique, which is to basically like, you know, crack the whip, just like try to like, you know, cause more work to happen. Whereas like my technique is just to align incentives. 
I basically want my team to think exactly the same way I'm thinking. Like I want them to make money when I make money. And so um, at, at Rentlinks, my first company, I, I had like a profit sharing plan. I was like, hey guys, if the company makes money, you make money. Um, but then that was very short lived because um, we didn't have any profit, you know, and we were growing very aggressively and I wasn't profiting either, right? And so even the incentives were aligned. Well, no, but incentives weren't aligned though because we had, I was very aggressively growing the company because I was looking to get it acquired one day and have this big exit, but they had no stake in that. And so incentives weren't aligned. Like I was looking to like minimize profit to maximize growth for the big exit. And I was offering them some of the profit of which there was no. So we, we weren't on the same team. And when I said, when, when I said incentives align, I wanted to be like, have like the same deal for both of us. And so then I was like, well, incentives aren't aligned. They should get a piece of the big exit too. And so I created a new system that was called um, like performance units, or it was basically called ghost stock. There's like, again, it's just like a word document that everyone signs and then you go to court if someone's pissed off, like that's how the world seems to work. And so we basically signed a word document that said, hey, if uh, the company ever sells, we like made up some like pretend units, like shares of stock. It wasn't technically stock because we were a small LLC and I didn't want to deal with all like the hassle of assigning stock and stuff. But I basically created this word document that said, hey, if the company sells, you guys are going to get a piece. And I gave them all like a number of shares and I had a number of shares. And my mom had a number of shares. And then the company did. And then, you know, and at one point, my, like one of my employees was like doing a great job. And I was like, I was like, dude, you don't get paid enough. I was like, I'm paying you more. And she's like, don't give me it. She's like, she's like, don't pay me anymore. Like I'm paid enough. Like that's not good for the company. Um, she literally turned out a, a, a raise just like flat out. And I was like, huh. And I was like, okay, how about more shares? And she's like, yeah, sure. And so I was like, that's fucking awesome. And then when we sold the company, I wrote her a check for like, I forget what it was, but it was like six figures. It was like, she got a giant check, you know? Um, and she bought a house with that check. It was great. Um, and so, you know, so basically it comes down to like aligning incentives, like aligning incentives saying, hey, like we make money at the same time. And then, and also just hiring the right people. You know, if if you have someone who doesn't isn't in, isn't incentivized the same way you are, isn't excited about the opportunity when they're getting paid exactly the same way as the owner is getting paid, then you gotta hire someone different. I think. And I do that same thing with Personal Finance Club. By the way, we have actually now Personal Finance Club in in stark contrast to Rentlinks is like very profitable. Like we have like very low overhead and like a lot of money, and so. Um, with Vivi, like we have, I had like that profit sharing plan where 25% of the company's profit gets split among employees, um, of which she's currently the only one. And so she's going to take home 25% of the company's profit this year. I think that's a really great principle to live by, especially for any entrepreneur who's listening, because you want to try to create a work environment that everyone's happy in. And it's not like, like Pravar was saying, you don't, you don't want to make it a chore, but, um, now I sort of wanted to shift over to investing. So um, you talk a lot on Personal Finance Club, your Instagram account, a lot about investing, a lot about budgeting. So as for investing, how should someone go about investing their money versus saving their money? Like how much and when should they go about this? Great question. Yeah, we've been talking all about entrepreneurship, which I don't talk about too much on my Instagram. It's a little bit harder to like make bite-sized infographics on it maybe. Um, but yeah, I love investing. How much should people invest? Well, I basically think they should follow. Well, here's my two rules. My two rules of building wealth. Rule number one is live below your means. That means spend less money than you make. And rule number two is invest early and often. If you do those two things, you'll be rich. 
even if you're not investing well, like even if you invest in crappy investments, like if you just buy all bonds or something, I mean, not that I like bonds, I own bonds, but like, you know, it's not a great investment for very young people usually. Um, but if you, all you do is you spend less than you make and you buy bonds your whole life, you're going to be like a bond millionaire when you're, when you're older, it's going to be great. But if you don't do those two things, you spend all your money and you don't invest early and often, then you're going to be broke no matter how much you make. So if you're making a hundred thousand a year or 500,000 a year and you spend a hundred or 500,000 a year after the year's over, you still have zero. And that is true for any amount of money. And so, um, yeah, so when we talk about investing, I always like to start very, very simply because the world of investing can be very intimidating and confusing. And so I always remind people to follow the two rules, spend less money than you make, invest early and often. That's how you build wealth. And then even if you're not doing it perfectly, then you can start to like hone. So yeah, how much should people invest? Well, some of their money, the more, the better, the more you invest, the richer you get or the faster you get rich. Um, you know, if you invest half of your take-home pay, you will have enough money to live off of forever after 15 years. So if you when, you, you, when you guys are 22 and you get jobs, if you just decide to like be crazy people and spend half of your money and invest the other half, when you are 37, you'll be able to live forever on your investments. That's not bad. Or 36, whatever. Yeah. 22 plus 15, 37. Yeah. So I guess my, you know, since we're shifting towards investing, a big component of what you talk about and what we really, what we try to advocate to our audience as well is to invest into index funds. And one thing that I heard a lot about is that you can retire early if you invest into index funds by taking a portion out once you're able to get a lot of money. So how do you retire early with index funds? Like how does that process work in like specific terms? That is a good question. And I get that question a lot. And to me, it's like, <laughs> it's a really uninteresting question. I mean, it's, I, I like the question, but like from my perspective, it just seems so, I'm like, yeah, you just take some of the money out. Like, it seems so simple, but I feel like, but I know what you're saying. It's like very abstract. You're like, okay, what, what money? Like, where is this money? And so this is how it works. Like in the, like, let's go with the most simple case. Like you go, you have a checking account and a savings account, right? You open up a third type of account that's called a brokerage account. And it's just an account. It's got a number. You put money in just like the other accounts, but this account's a little different because instead of just holding cash, it can hold investments like stocks and bonds. And so an index fund is basically a single package that contains sometimes hundreds or thousands of stocks. So you can buy a single index fund, for example, that owns basically all of the world's stocks. So you, go to, you can go to vanguard.com, a website, type, click open an account, open a Vanguard account or a brokerage account. Then you can buy a ticker symbol called VTWAX, Vanguard Total World Stock Market Index Fund, and then put Put money in there. So, like in that in that 50-50 example, I said, you you spend 50% of your money, and then other 50% of money you put into VTWX, that single index fund. Then 15 years later, that index fund will have grown to about 25 times your annual spending. So if you 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 know, and this is all relative to how much you make. So if you make a hundred thousand, you're spending fifty thousand, and fifty thousand, fifty thousand is twenty five, twenty five, whatever. So like, let's say you make fifty thousand and you invest twenty five thousand. Twenty five thousand times twenty five is I don't know what that is. I have to do the math on my calculator. Twenty five thousand times twenty five is six hundred twenty five thousand dollars. So you'll have six hundred twenty five thousand dollars in your Vanguard account. Then what you mentioned is called the safe withdrawal rate. So you can take four percent of that per year out and adjust it for inflation every year and basically be, be extremely unlikely to ever go broke. Like we don't know what the future is going to hold. So I can't guarantee that something crazy won't happen, but you know, based on the historical volatility of the stock market, the historical 
inflation returns, all that stuff, you can basically take 4% of this out every year. So you go to vanguard.com and you go click on your brokerage account, or for the last 15 years, you've been putting money in, and then you take out 4%. Like, you know, on January 1st, you, you just, you, you can sell some of the index fund for whatever the current market rate is. There's a button that says sell, and you sell, it says how much you want to sell, and you can sell dollars. And so 4% of um, 625,000, sorry, I have a calculator over here. I can't do this math in my head is $25,000. Oh yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, so that means you can take your $25,000 per year out, uh, from there and then, and then live forever and even adjust it for inflation. So yeah, that's how it works. Does that make sense? Does that make it less abstract? I know it's like, until you see it, until you do it once, it still feels very abstract, but still it's like clicking buttons on a website. You take, you sell the money, you have 25,000 and then you click transfer, you put it into your checking account and then the money goes into your checking account. And then you go to the ATM and you take it out. Then you have cash. Then you go to the grocery store and you put like bananas on the like conveyor belt. And then they say that will be $3. Then you give them the money and then, and then you can take the bananas and eat them. So it works. really is pretty simple at the end of the day. Right. But I, I feel like a lot of people have this excuse that, oh, well, I don't have enough money to actually invest. So what do you tell those kind of people? Yeah. Um, you know, that's legit sometimes. Um, you know, I, I don't mean to like, uh, poverty, shame, anyone who is like, you know, if you're, you know, like I said, when I was making 800 bucks a month, um, I was living on credit cards. I was not investing. I wasn't considering investing. I was racking up debt. I was broke. Um, you know, no amount of wagging my finger at someone who makes 800 bucks a month, um, is going to like cause them to have enough money to invest. Um, that's if you're making like, you know, the, I think the U S median income or household median income right now is like 60 some thousand per year. Um, you know, but there are some people who make 50,000 per year and like, like ask a person who makes 50,000 a year, if like 60,000 a year would be nice. Um, they will say, yes, you know, that's 10,000 bucks difference. Right. So you, if that means you can invest 10,000 bucks, like, you know, there are some people who make 40,000 a year and there's some people who make 80,000 a year. Can the person who makes 80,000 a year, like live like the person who makes 40,000 a year and invest half like, yep. Like they can, they usually don't, uh, because people, you know, our society is built around, uh, you know, materialistic things. Like we talk about, you know, I'm like kind of, my eyes are wandering as I'm thinking and I'm seeing a bunch of cars out here and everyone wants out here. I'm looking in my front yard or whatever. Um, like not, not my cars or other people's cars. I only have one car. It's a Mazda. Um, but other people's cars parked in front. I was like, yeah, people like want the newest car. They want the newest iPhone. They want the new, like, you know, and, and that's all we talk about. And, um, you know, living below your means isn't really part of like mainstream culture in America. Um, so, you know, for sure, if you're like, if you're below the poverty line, you need to like, your goal is not to invest right now. Your goal is to build your income, you know, and to do that, you need to either, advance your career, advance your education, you know, think five years down the road, what, what can you do to improve your situation? Um, but once, you know, once you're making, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80,000 a year plus, like then you can start living below your means and investing. For sure. I think you had a really good, you had like two really good points. One that if you're really poor and you have, you know, a lot of debt and you don't really have that much income, the biggest thing to probably do is probably tackle on that debt, get that sort of income. And then once you're able to grow, then you can start investing, which will be really profitable in the long run. And then the second talk about a lot of people are oriented towards material subjects. I think another cause or whatever like people are doing right now is creating lifestyle inflation where when they get a raise, 
they think now they can spend even more now because they're quote unquote more wealthier because they earn more, they can buy more designer clothing, better, you know, objects, I guess. And that kind of creates a stigma that the more you have, the more supposedly rich you supposed to be, you are be, but technically you're looking rich, but not necessarily are rich, which is why living below your means is always going to be best in the short term when you invest more and do all that. And then in the long term, you always went out. So I kind of wanted to ask one question about the index funds concept in that if you're in investing overall, if you're investing in your brokerage account, and you also probably have to invest into your Roth IRA, probably into your 401k, how do you split between all those investments? How do you know how much you have to do? Sure. So when I gave my very simple example of how you can live off of your uh, investments, I just called it a brokerage account. Um, and you can do that. You can totally do that. In fact, like historically, that was the only type of investment account. But the government, the friendly US government at some point along the way said, hey, not enough people are investing. We want more people to invest as a matter of public policy. So we don't have a bunch of broke old people in this country because having a bunch of broke old people is not good for our country. We have to like, raise taxes to give them money so they're not dying on the streets or whatever. Um, and so they're trying to incentivize um, saving for your own retirement. And so the way they did that said, hey, if you put money into a brokerage account, we will give you a special deal on taxes. And they can't put into a regular brokerage account because that already has its own tax deal. So they made a new type of a brokerage account called an IRA. It stands for Individual Retirement Account. All it is is another brokerage account. But if you put money into this one, then in the case of a Roth IRA, which is just the name for the type of tax break you get, you never pay tax on it ever again. So if you, for example, this year put $6,000 into a Roth IRA, and then over the course of your career, it grows to $100,000, which is possible for people as young as you, um, you can take that $100,000 out and spend every last penny of it 100% tax-free. So all that growth, that $94,000 of growth between $6,000 and $100,000, is not taxed. In a brokerage account, it is taxed. That's called a capital gain. You have to pay tax on the gains and any dividends paid along the way. But inside of a Roth IRA, that is not taxed. And so basically, you could put every penny to your name inside of a regular brokerage account. In fact, in my own personal financial situation, most of my money, probably 95% of my money is in a regular brokerage account because I make too much money to put it into these special tax advantage accounts because the government said, okay, it's tax-free, but there are, some, um, there are some catches, there are some strings attached. One of the strings attached is you can't put into a Roth IRA more than $6,000 per year. So for like millionaires like me, you know, they don't really want us using it because we already have enough money. If you were like someone who's making 60,000 bucks a year and you put 6,000 bucks in 10% of your pay, that means that money is tax-free forever and never to be touched again. And the other, I mean, there's several rules, but one of the other rules is you can't take it out, no strings attached until you're 59 and a half. So it's basically like the government saying, hey, here's a special deal, great deal on taxes, no better deal on taxes, but you can only put in 6,000 bucks a year and you gotta leave it there until you're old. So basically trying to like the government making rules to get their agenda working, which is less broke old people in the US. Um, so how do you prioritize those? We'll actually have an investing checklist on my website that basically goes through like which of these accounts. The very first one is the 401k up to the match. 401k is another special type of brokerage account. This one that's only offered through employer 
employers for some reason. Why? Who knows? But employers often offer a match, which means if you put money in, they'll put more money in. If you don't do that, you're basically, you know, flushing money down the toilet every month. And so, you know, that's your very first step in investing is to put money into the into your 401k or your 403b up to your employer match to make sure you get every dollar from your employer they're willing to give you. The second step is actually an HSA, which is yet another type of brokerage account. This one with it actually has a triple tax benefit. It's relatively unusual because you have to have a health insurance that's HSA compatible, but you can put up to like 35, 50 per year. It changes every year. Then the next step is a Roth IRA, which is the one I just described. Then the next step goes back to 401k. If you can put more, if you can invest even more money, you put into your 401k. And then the next step is a regular brokerage account. So there's like the five and this is for most people, if you're not self-employed, if you have like a regular job, those are like the five most common places you'd put money. Again, this is just like a tax optimization. If, if you just skipped to step five, and put all your money into a regular brokerage account, that would be fine. It would still grow. You could still live off of it forever, but you'd just be paying more tax than you need to. So that's why you optimize those other accounts in that order. So what do you think are the main steps that a person has to take before they actually start investing? So... Uh, I actually have a like phases also on my website, personalfinance.com, by the way, shout out to my, uh, you know, self promotion. Um, but I have a, a, uh, an article or page called the phases of investing. And actually the first step I actually think is investing. The first step is to maximize the 401k match, because if you don't do that, you're literally just throwing money away. And there are some, you know, anti-debt advocates who say, don't invest a penny until you're totally out of debt. But the thing is like, in the extreme example, you could do your 401k match and then the next day, take it all out, pay the 10% tax penalty on it. And then, you know, have already gotten an instant, like, you know, 80% return on your money or whatever. Um, you know, that's always going to be a good deal. Then the second step, in my opinion, is paying off all your non-mortgage debt. So if you have credit card loan, student loan, car loan, medical loan, personal loan. If you owe anyone money, like get that out of your life because debt is like this anchor that's like tied to your ankle when you're trying to swim a race and you got to get rid of that debt. So pay off all of your debt and stay out of debt. You know, debt is not how, you know, there are some people talking about good debt and leverage and stuff like that. And like in real estate, like we can talk about that, but for normal consumer debt, like get out of debt. Don't, that's bad. It costs you money. It makes other people rich. It doesn't make you rich. Then the third step is to build an emergency fund. An emergency fund is basically a little cash buffer that's like you know three or six months um, savings or three, three or six months of your expenses. So you can basically, if you get fired or you have a family emergency or something, you're not gonna go back into debt. So you build up some cash. So maybe it's 10,000 bucks something. Then you start investing. So basically you would have to have like a general solid foundation, no debt, a little bit of the cash. Then you start investing working through that checklist, like I mentioned. Yeah, I think that's really important that people have a kind of people have a plan on how they should go about investing, because a lot of people, they hear the term, you should invest early, invest now, but they don't know what to do. So it's really important to know exactly what you need to do in, you have to get like a 401k, have your brokerage account, Roth IRA, have all those plans, and then you can be able to tackle that goal. And I just had one more question before, you know, kind of shift from this investing topic is that when you have your order from a 401k to an HSA and a Roth IRA, those are accounts where you take your money out when you're 59 and a half or like when you're really old. So how would that, so is that the best option if you want to be able to like use your money like in between those years? Like, is there a way that you could take it out 
or is that mainly just for retirement? So that's a good question. Like, what do you do if you want to retire early and or access that money early and all your money is locked away? It's a question that I'm always asked by young people and I've never, ever seen that happen in real life. You know, I've never seen someone who's like, I'm 38 and I'm so fabulously wealthy that I could retire, but all my money is locked away in an IRA. Like that's, that's never happened. Um, and, and, you know, in the most extreme case, the penalty is 10%. So like, let's say you have 3 million bucks saved up in IRAs and 401ks and HSAs, and then you just take every penny of it out that day, put it into your checking account. You would owe the government 300,000 bucks and you would have $2.7 million in your, and you, you know, you might owe taxes on it too, depending on, um, you know, what type of account it is. But, you know, that's like the extreme case. Like I'm not suggesting anyone should do that because you don't need to, but I'm saying that's like, it's not really locked away. It's just there's a penalty associated with it because the government's saying, hey, we're not gonna give you this tax break if you don't follow the rules. That said, there's some ways to get around it. So first of all, basically anyone who gets to this point of early retirement has already maxed out all the retirement accounts and then some. So you can only put away, you know, 25,000 bucks a year or something in 401k and IRA. And most people who are like literally gonna retire early are saving more than that. So they're saving 35,000 or 40,000, like big, kind of big numbers, right? And so all that excess is going to a brokerage account, which they can access anytime. Also, if you if you have a lot of money in your retirement accounts and you're like five years out, like you can like pull up the spreadsheet and be like, I think I can retire in five years. Then at that point, maybe you can start putting money into a brokerage account and not maxing out retirement accounts. But even that I don't really recommend because there's other ways, like there's a thing called a Roth. First of all, in any Roth accounts, you can take out the money you put in anytime, no tax, no penalty, any reason. So like, let's say, you know, you put in $60,000 over 10 years into a Roth IRA and it grew to 120,000. You can take out the original 60,000, no tax, no penalty, any reason, whenever you want. And there's also a thing called a Roth IRA ladder, where if you have traditional accounts, you know, this is getting kind of technical, but I hope the takeaway here is that like there's options. Um, you could, if you have money in like your 401k, for example, you can convert it to a Roth IRA and the government doesn't want you to do that as a way to instantly access it, but there's like a five-year window. So you can convert money and then five years later, you can take all that money out and spend it. And so there's this thing called a Roth ladder where basically every year you convert one year's worth of your um, future income to Roth status. And then you take, then you live on the, the conversion from five years ago, basically then transferring all of your money from retirement account status to I can spend it whenever I want status. Um, you know, you also people end up owning real estate, which is usually outside of these types of accounts, which provide income. Um, there's also a couple of government rules, like the rule of 55 and, and rule 72 T, which also offer options to access your money before 59 and a half. Um, so basically it's not a real problem. And I recommend that people do max out those retirement accounts, but even if you don't, that's fine too. Like throw it all in a brokerage account. I don't care. You can access that money anytime. Like brokerage accounts are nice. They're great. You can take the money out like whenever you want. Um, so I wanted to sort of shift over from investing to a more general personal finance question. Um, so I wanted to know your take on what do you think is more important, net worth or cash flow? I saw this. I feel like I saw this on an Instagram post the other day. And I remember yeah, thinking about it. It was um, um it was on Robert Leonard's uh, Instagram story. Oh uh, yeah, he has a great podcast. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. I feel like cash flow is like a very like real estate um, centric perspective. Like I think in terms of like I don't even know what my cash flow is. Like I think in terms of net worth, 
because, but the reason I think of, ter- think of it in terms of net worth, and so net worth, by the way, is everything you own minus everything you owe. So if you have a house that's worth a million bucks and that's your only asset, you got $0 in your bank account and you have a mortgage on that house that's 950,000 bucks, you own a million bucks and you owe 950,000. So your net worth is a million minus 950,000, which is 50,000 bucks. Um, the bigger your net worth generally, if it's not in your primary home, um, the more cash flow you have. So for example, I, my net worth is a bit over $4 million and you know, that 4% rule where I can withdraw 4% per year is $160,000. So I could theoretically draw for my investments, $160,000 per year and live forever. Um, you know, if I had a net worth of zero and a cash flow of $160,000, that would be nice. Um, but I would prefer to also have the money. And so I, I guess I, I like, I like net worth because it, it implies cash flow. Um, but you know, what you really want is cash flow because then you can spend that money and spend it on things that you like. And, and, you know, if you have, if you've got a hundred grand in positive cash flow, that's not your job, you know, then you basically don't need a job. You know, you, you can live pretty darn well forever, pretty much in any country in the world. Yeah. Cause I guess the main reason why I was wondering about this was because there's a difference, at least I think between like regular assets, which is everything that you owe, like you said, versus cash flowing assets. So stuff that's actually bringing you money because for me, like you can have thousands of dollars of furniture that's not really going to use, but you still own that. And from what I think I may be wrong on this, but that still factors into your net worth, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, I think at a certain level of wealth, like furniture and stuff just becomes rounding error. Like if you look at um, the breakdown of net worth, the breakdown of net worth by net worth. So like people who are in the bottom 20% of the US's net worth, like a lot of their net worth is in their car. A lot of net worth is like in their stuff. Um, whereas if you look at the net worth of the top 20%, like none of their net worth is in their car, like, you know, 0.1% or something. And so yeah, like my car is worth I paid $30,000 for it and now it's worth maybe 15,000 or something. And so whatever 15,000 divided by 4 million is, it's like nothing. But if my net worth was 30,000, my car would be half of that. Um, and so, you know, yeah, having a net worth of non-productive assets or depreciating assets like furniture is non-productive because it doesn't provide income and it's depreciating because it's worth less every year. A car is non-productive and depreciating. The house you live in is non-productive, but hopefully appreciating. Although I, I would even argue that because you have to spend more money every year to maintain it, then it goes up in value. Uh, but things like investment real estate that where you have a renter paying you rental income or stocks and bonds where you have dividends paying you and they're going up in value, those are productive and appreciating assets. And so, yeah, um, you know, I... I would definitely say maybe that net worth thing with an asterisk, asterisk, asterisk saying only count your productive assets. Like, you know, don't count your furniture, don't count your car. Um, you know, and I think, you know, wealthy people only count the productive assets anyway. Like they don't like, I don't even put my net worth or my car into my net worth because it, yeah, it's just not worth enough to like make it keep track of it or whatever. Um, yeah. So I would, for, for you young whippersnappers track your productive assets. Actually, that might be a good, Instagram posts, your, your productive net worth, not your total net worth. Yeah, that's a good point. Net worth and cash flow both are really important, but you know, you kind of want to make sure that you're not falling into the trap of getting 
quote unquote non-productive assets, like the assets which seem like they're investments, but they're really not. Yeah. So <clears throat> now we kind of want to switch to towards social media and marketing. So you've obviously grown a lot on social media. As I said before, you had 250K followers on Instagram and your TikTok is also growing. So how did you begin? Like, when did you decide that you wanted to start making the social media platform? And what were the best, you know, strategies that you used to end up growing it? Thanks. Yeah. Before we started recording, you guys were like very gracious and said something to the tune of like, I can't believe you're on my podcast or something like that. And I like remind you guys, like I was just a dude like clicking create account on Instagram two years ago. Like, you know, I, you know, I'm still no one all that special, but, um, but you know, that's how all these things start. They start very small and grow. And so, yeah, it started because I had sold my company and I was, you know, unemployed, retired, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I was having a conversation with an ex-girlfriend of mine and she was like, what be when you grow up? And I said, I would love to like, I love personal finance. I love teaching personal finance. I love talking about index funds and IRAs and helping people like realize how they can like turn their money into more money. Um, and I would love to have like a Netflix show or a podcast or a whatever. And we both talked about it and we're like, yeah, that's not crazy. Um, and so I, you know, registered the domain personal finance club. Actually, I had to buy it. There's like 500 bucks. I negotiated them down. So I bought personalfinanceclub.com. Um, I created the Instagram personal finance club. And then I just started posting and I was like, I'm just going to post every single day, once a day, every single day. And it's like, never stop. And, you know, and I know that these types of things require a lot of persistence. And so, yeah, for the first month, it was like kind of defeating, like no one gave a shit. I had no followers, um, you know, maybe for a couple of months, it was like that, you know, like it, honestly, it went really well. Like I can't, I, I can't really sing that much of a sob story. It's not like I was, you know, you know, after I think two or three months, someone really, you know, and the first month was really bad. Like I was posting about like, you know, is it a good time to buy treasury bonds? Like this kind of stuff that like, just was really, really like niche and like, wasn't connecting with people. But, you know, to my credit, what I did was like, basically iterate. I said, okay, this isn't working. Like, what do people like, you know, I, I try to get feedback. I try to like DM and comment and stuff like that and see like what was connecting with people. And then kept you know, brainstorming and having ideas and testing those ideas. And eventually I made some good content. And then there's one day where someone with like a thousand followers, which was like big to me, or maybe with someone with 5,000, I forget. Someone with like 5,000 followers, like a big account, um, like shared my post. I was like, whoa. And then someone saw her post with like, uh, you know, 20,000 followers and shared. I was like, whoa. And then someone with 50,000 followers shared. I was like, whoa. And, and I got like a thousand new followers in a day. I was like, it's like, oh my, like, I was crazy. And so I went from like 300 followers, which were like, you know, my friends and bots and stuff to like 1300 followers. I was like, whoa, um, you know, but like still to, to, today, like a thousand, like if I pick up a thousand followers in a day, that's like a great day for me. Um, you know, so it's just a grind, you know, now it's like two and a half years later and I still do the same thing. I just try to post really good content. Um, you know, people ask like what the secret is. And I was like, yeah, content is king. You know, I, um, you know, there's some Instagram tricks. Like you try to like put good, honest hashtags. You don't try to post regularly, um, you know, have like a good brand, like similar color images, like have a good bio, have a good image, like, you know, have really consistent content. But like at the end of the day, it's like content is king. Yeah, I love that message because it's all about persistence, whether, you know, whether it's entrepreneurship or it's social media, because you just have to try to, keep doing what you're doing to see what works. And then, you know, hopefully you'll get something out of that. 
So, you know, you said you were, were you also working on like your entrepreneurship stuff while you were working on personal finance club too? Uh, so I sold my company when I was 34 and I quit my job at 36 and I started personal finance club at like 37. So there was like a year of nothing in between. And then, um, yeah, and it was just meant to be a side hobby, but then I actually did turn into a business like a year and a half after I started it. Yeah. So I guess what I'm, what I was trying to say was like, how were you able to manage doing like without missing a beat, like every single day? Um, with your infographics and your content, how are, how are you able to create that mindset that I'm going to post every day and, you know, keep that up? Um, you know, part of it was, you know, like in like privilege, I guess part of it was I didn't have a job so I could do it, but you know, to, to like, there are people who do have jobs who crank out more content than me. And I kind of look at them and all, I'm like, man, I don't know how you do it. Like I'm pretty busy with stuff in my life. Um, and people are put, cranking more content than me. So it's like, you know, a lot more content sometimes. Like I like rarely post my stories just because like, I don't have time to post my stories. I'm trying to like, you know, do other stuff. Some people are posting like 50 stories a day. It's crazy. Um, so, you know, but I, but I guess to my credit, like I just had that mindset. I was like, okay, I know I've done this before. Um, and, you know, I, I knew I had a success with RentLinks, my first company. And, and I would like, sometimes people would like ask me for advice and I would, try to like humbly and graciously give it to them since they asked but I was like could I do it again like am I full of shit like you know was I just lucky was it just was was that just a matter of good timing or the right place at the right time or whatever um but I was like all right I'm just gonna do what I said I'm gonna do I'm gonna like be persistent I'm gonna track my metrics so I was like tracking how often I posted how many stories I posted how many comments I posted I was tracking this and I wasn't tracking the success I mean I was tracking the followers which is called like the lag metric but I was tracking the grind like, you know, I was tracking how hard am I working, how often am I posting, how many, you know, and I was like, the more grind that you put in, the more success you get later. And so instead of just like focusing on the outcome, I was focusing on the input, like I was focusing on what I was putting in and then, it, you know, started working and, it, and, it, and I started and I did that like during that time where I was kind of like not doing that well, when I started focusing on the grind um, that started working. And so, yeah, I, I think I did like leverage some of my like entrepreneurial, um, you know, behavioral habits to try to turn this Instagram into a success. Yeah, I think when you said that you're focused more on the actual work that you're putting in rather than the overall success, it's kind of a reminder to a lot of content creators, aspiring people, especially uh, like us, when we're trying to create our content. And then some days when you see like post a, like a lot of content, you think it's really good. And then some days, not a lot of, you know, viewership or followers. You have to remember that it, like, as long as what you're posting is getting better and better as like you're improving it, that's kind of what matters more than the overall outcome because it'll end up working overall. So kind of one last question before we shift to a different topic. When you decided that, you know, you're going to have like, you're going to stick to that one niche or that one kind of area, like after testing different things out, you found like, I guess your sweet spot as to what you're going to, what kind of content you're going to project. When you're recommending someone who's beginning do you suggest that they just go for a broad sense? Like they can talk about multiple things and then whatever they start liking or whatever they think the viewership is attracting to, they hone in on that or they try a few things at once. And then if that's not working, they shift over to other things. Um, I think focus is really important. I think that, um, you know, one of the most common mistakes I see from small businesses is like lack of focus. Um, so, I think about like, what if you walked up to like a small business and they're like, 
we sell, uh, we do like taco catering. We sell, sell snow tires and, ha- and sell ex- exotic fish food. You'd be like, I'm not sure I want to buy snow tires from you or get taco catering from you. Like that all seems very sketchy. Um, but if you walked up to a small business, they're like, all we do is exotic fish food. Like we're the exotic fish food store. Like that's everything. That's all we're about. We're about exotic fish food. Like if you needed exotic fish food, you would probably travel to go there as opposed to like going to Petco or going to Walmart or whatever. And so I think that small businesses are like, oh man, I, I wish I had more customers. I need to offer more stuff. But that's that's kind of like short-sighted because when you offer more stuff, you're just doing, you can't even do one thing that well as a small business. How do you do 10 things well, right? And so, and the same is true for an Instagram account or for, or for growing content, right? Like if you're like uh, doing, you know, home remodels and, uh, like a baking show and like, uh, electrical engineering tips or something like that. People would get to your channel and be like, what is this? Like, this is so crazy. And like, you know, and I look at, if you look at successful accounts, like there's this account on YouTube I follow, it's called the lock picking lawyer. And the, and the, and the lawyer actually has nothing to do with it. It's just like a guy that's like, he happens to be a lawyer in his day job, but he just picks locks every day. And he has like 1500 videos or something that's just him never shows his face, just his hands picking locks and he narrates. And it's like, and like, couldn't be more specific, right? Like just picks locks every single day, multiple times a day, whatever. And he's got millions of followers. I assume he's like super successful, like, you know, and you know, he's not like, oh, I should do some on uh, painting too. Cause then it's like, oh, sometimes I'm here for painting. Sometimes here for, for lock picking, like followers are like, what am I getting here? And they don't follow. And, and, you know, when I look at someone's account, and I like, I read the bio and look at their image and scan through the feed on an Instagram account. I'm thinking like, what is this, you know? And if it's like some bikini pics and it's some personal finance tips and it's some, and it's some like home remodel tips or something, it's like, Oh, like what, you know, it's like, it's like, you're nothing. You're, not, you're just like someone posting random nonsense, you know? So I would say be really specific, be really focused if that focus seems to not connect with people, then you iterate and you try to find out what is connected with people and then you shift, but then have the new shift be focused, right? Stop doing the old thing, start doing the new thing. Um, I think that's like a much more successful tactic. So now I wanna move on to some, like a generating income sort of aspect. So especially for young people, what's a best? what's the best side hustle or what are some of the best side hustles to pursue when you're young and when you don't have as much experience? best side hustle well i think the best side hustle is usually a main hustle i mean you guys are teenagers so you uh your main hustle is like going to school um and often when teenagers or college kids ask me about investing my answer is like don't yet you know like the the best investment that you two can make is in yourself i know it's corny and i like i cringe just saying it but like you know if the work you do now can make like a 30% difference in your future income, that's going to have a massively bigger, different, bigger impact on your life than like trying to invest from like, you know, the pennies you have now or whatever. Right. And 30% difference in income is like small, right. You know, some people make a hundred times more than other people. And, and so 30% is like a tiny, it's like the tiny difference between two very similar income earners. Some people make a hundred times more than other people. And so when you're young, 
you should be focusing on it's it sounds so corny but like getting great grades and like when you go to college like studying a degree that's going to be in high demand that's like you know if you come out of if you come out of a very expensive college like a very expensive private college with like a basket weaving degree i'm trying not to like offend any specific degree but if you come out of like you know and no one's hiring basket weavers and you spend a hundred thousand dollars on a degree you have a bad start if you come out of like a state school with like little or no debt with a computer science degree, I'm biased because that's what I have, you're going to have people offering you $100,000 a year to work. Like that's how you get rich. Like that's your best side hustle is like getting your main hustle. That said, like, you know, I, I like entrepreneurship. If you guys like, you guys clearly have this podcast going. If it grows, you'll be able to get sponsorships. Um, you know, I, I don't like any MLMs, like pyramid schemes, that's like Herbalife or anything where you're trying to recruit people. Like most people lose money in that. Like one FTC study says that like over 99% of participants lose money. Um, I like starting your own business. So like if you're a teenager, like walking around your neighborhood and offering to drag people's trash cans out for, you know, 10 bucks a month or something. Like I bet you could get 10 of those people sign up pretty quick and you're making a hundred bucks a month. Um, just like in, on trash day, stopping by you know 10 different houses or something like i would pay someone 10 bucks a month to that you crazy especially like a hard-working teenager um you know i like stuff like that where you're kind of like building you're creating your own business and and there's no other entity involved you know even like an uber or lyft like um it gets kind of sketchy like how much money you work and you know they set up the rules so that they make money not so that you make money um they're not terrible but um yeah i like where you actually start your own business you know landscaping golf caddying uh you know, anything where, you know, anything where tips are involved, especially as a young person, you're probably going to make bank. That's the stuff I like. For sure. And I really like the part where you talked about investing in yourself because now you're kind of obviously focusing on school is very important, but also learning like what you want to do in the future, what you need to prepare in terms of like the skills, the mentality you need to have and just getting the knowledge beforehand. So that way, when you get in the real world, you get that income, you're sort of prepared to know what to do. So what are some of the things that teenagers should do in terms of what skills should they acquire before, you know, they go off to college or go off into like after college, what kind of, what should they read? What kind of mentality they should have? How should they view these years to invest in themselves and better them when they come out? Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a believer in the school system. Uh, there's a lot of it that is nonsense, quite frankly. And it's easy as a teenager to like focus on that. Um, and, I would probably very, be very annoyed if I went back to school as a lot of teenagers are where they go, I'm like, have to do this project that doesn't matter. But you know, like it's good to get good grades and it's good to go to a college that matters. And you look, you can look at very, very rare examples like Mark Zuckerberg or Bill Gates who dropped out of college and became some of the wealthiest people on the planet. But even those guys were going to Harvard, right? Like they got good grades in high school. Um, and then they made a very calculated decision in, the, in their moment in time to like, forego their last couple of years of college because they saw how much money they could make in this other opportunity. Like they weren't starting from the premise of like dropping out. They were starting from the premise of like get good grades at a great school. Um, so I would like, you know, but I would focus on like keeping your eyes on the horizon. Like I used to be a runner and one of the a running tip was like, don't look down at your feet when you're running. It's like a very, it slows you down, right? You're like, you're hunched over, you're thinking it short term, you're thinking about the next step, like look up, keep your eyes on the horizon, like look over the next hill and like run towards that. And I would use that metaphor here to say, you know, think about what's life going to look like when you're coming out of college. 
Um, you know, what, you know, some people go job hunting when they come out of college. It's not fun to go job hunting. Like when I uh, posted a job for personal finance club, when I hired my first employee, I got like 250 applications. Um, it was crazy and depressing for me because there were 249 people who got a no. Like they weren't bad, like they're, the vast majority of them were awesome and probably would have done an awesome job, but that was just numbers. And so, you know, those, you know, and, and many of them already had jobs. I'm not like knocking those people, but like, you know, you don't want to be hunting for a job where you're up against those kinds of odds. The alternative to job hunting is getting recruited. Um, you know, and some companies are in desperate need of employees. Um, they recruit heavily from colleges who are graduating people with those skills. And it doesn't need to even be a four-year university. You know, there are, I think even like, there's some, I just heard something about like a, like a six month program that's like graduating like technology people that can like go to work in technology. There are some, you know, two-year programs. I have some friends who, who got medical degrees, not, not like doctor, but like uh, in the medical field, like an x-ray technician or a cardiovascular technician or respiratory therapist. These are like specialized, they're not nurses, but they're specialized medical professionals who get paid very well, like 60, 70, $80,000 a year right out of school for a two-year degree from a community college would cost like 5,000 bucks a year or something. And so for like almost no money, you can be making bank. And so, you know, think, you know, so when I say keep your eyes on the horizon, look at like, look at the jobs that are recruiting like maybe talk, go to, go to some career days, go to some like job fests and see, like, see the companies, like ask them, like, what type of people are you recruiting? Like talk to your career accounts, it's like stuff like that. And then just go towards that type of career, you know? And there are different ones, you know, like I talk about computer science, it's like an obvious one right now, but it's not, that's not for everyone, you know? So find what makes sense for you and, and go towards it. So as we wrap up, I wanted to ask you one final question. What would you have told 16-year-old Jeremy if you could tell him something today? Man, whenever I ask that, I just want to be like, buy Bitcoin, wait until 2009, put every penny into your name into Bitcoin, and then <laughs> buy it for one cent, hold it until 2021 with $60,000, $50,000 a coin, and then sell and become a Bitcoin billionaire. Um, I would have told him a few things. I'd say focus on track. This is, these are not good tips for other people. This is, this is like totally un, un actionable. But yeah, when I ran college, like I was trying to do a lot of stuff. I was trying to like get degrees and date and blah, blah, like, but all that stuff I could have done after college to accept track. Um, you know, you only have one chance to be in high school and you have only have one chance to be in college. And so I'm glad I got a good degree, but like if my grades were a little bit worse in college, like no one asks me what my GPA is. Like no one cares what my GPA was. Like I had a good GPA, by the way, it was like 3.6 something out of college, which was pretty solid for an athlete. Um, but if it was 3.4 something, uh, that would have been okay. I would have had a high value as a person. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, I would also say that like it gets, you know, 16 year old Jeremy like was kind of coming out of like middle school, like the worst years of my life. Um, and I would say that it, like it gets better. You know, I feel like that's like a phrase used for you know, people of the LGBT community. But I think for, you know, for most high schoolers, like things get better. Like, you know, you, you can find your niche, you can find your rut or your, your, your place in life and you can achieve success. And I was like very nerdy, like picked on in middle school, like no friends, like the lowest of a low social status. And during high school, I started to get a little bit better. 
Um, but you know, it, it gets better. Just keep, you know, hanging there, you know, who you are in high school does not define you. Um, you know, great success comes after life. And also like, you'll find, you know, your niche and you'll find your circle and you'll find your partner and you'll find your friend group like that. That generally comes later in life for everyone. So just, you know, hang in there, keep working. That's what I say. Yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. I mean, you taught us so much about like, especially what you've done in your life, how you've grown and become so successful and talk to us about your own personal experiences. So thank you for being so open, so knowledgeable and yeah, thank you so much. Thank you guys. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Best of luck to you. Be persistent, keep improving. And if you guys uh, stick with us for 10 years, I bet you'll be an overnight success too, but it usually takes a while. Of course. Yep. Thank you so much, Jeremy.